It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It's not an easy time to be a teenager or a young adult. The pandemic hit those groups really hard. Good job opportunities are tough to come by and increasingly require advanced degrees. The cost of housing is through the roof, but parents just don't understand. So I have a whole section in there called, when I was your age. <laughs> oh, the favorite words and, that kids and teenagers And I say, don't, don't say that, don't think it. it, it's not helpful, and it's wrong. Two accomplished psychologists published books last year on the unique challenges young people are grappling with right now. How can parents be more understanding and supportive when kids are dealing with life's tough realities? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Clinical adolescent psychologist Lisa Damore wrote The Emotional Lives of Teenagers after she watched teenage mental health issues go haywire during the pandemic. Developmental psychologist and researcher Lawrence Steinberg published his book, You and Your Adult Child, at a time when more Americans in their 20s are living with their parents than ever before in recorded history. In today's talk, Damore and Steinberg take turns interviewing each other and share tips for parents dealing with unexpected challenges. Here's Damore. I think so many families, in their private way, have discovered that parenting does not end at 18, and it does not end at 21, <laughs> and it does not end at 27, right. and there's been a huge gap in the literature yep. for these families. And you stepped into this space with this terrific book, You and Your Adult Child. And so not only did you step into a space where there was a desperate need, but then you wrote, I think, the ideal book for that space. You're welcome. And I'm going to read what I said on the back of your book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put my money where my mouth is here. Steinberg distills decades of wisdom and experience into the sensitive, straight-shooting guide that parents of grown children have been waiting for. With deep compassion for all involved, you and your adult child details exactly when, why, and how to address the toughest topics, from mental health to finances to sex. I will be recommending this practical, research-based, clear-eyed book to everyone I know. So let me just say a few more words about why I liked your book so much, and then I'm going to ask you questions about it. Sure. Okay. So the thing You can take a long time to talk about it. (laughs) Okay. Go on and on. (laughs) Go on and on. Um, The thing that I found so wonderful about your book is as you moved from one really loaded topic to the next, you accomplished something that I think is like nearly impossible, which is that it was simultaneously deeply sensitive and also neutral. And, and that's really hard to do. And I was thinking about how you accomplish that. And the way I would describe it is that you hold yourself equidistant between the adult children and the parent. And for topic after topic, you describe, here's what it looks like to your kid, here's what it looks like to you, and then from that position, you articulate, here's how you might want to think about this, here's how you might want to go into it. And I think there are three central gifts that you give the reader throughout this book. One is, I think you give them company in a very hard space. I think it's incredibly isolating to parent, 
especially as kids become teenagers, and then especially if your young adult is struggling. Mm -hmm. So to have um, so much evidence that they're not alone, I think is huge. The second is I think you teach by doing. And what I mean is you walk up to these very, very fraught topics with a kind of matter-of-factness that I think helps the reader approach in the same way. And then the last, and this is huge, you give language all through about how to actually broach very delicate things. And I'm just going to read one little passage in an incredibly um, tricky topic, which is talking with your kids about how you intend to disperse um, your, the, the estate. The estate, right? I mean, like, you go right for um, some of the hardest things. And um, you talk about, like, wanting to avoid feelings of disappointment and wanting to help there not be unpleasant surprises. And just to quote a little bit at the end, you say, there's a good reason to handle these topics with extra care, perhaps even beginning the part of the conversation with something like, and then you quote, some of our plans may surprise you. But let's talk about them so that you understand our thinking, and please ask any questions you have." End quote. A disappointed child may feel less angry once they've heard your reasoning. But I think those sentences, you know, you can have the theory, you can have the idea, but then the language is pure gold. So I really liked your book. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so here's my first question for you. It means a lot to me. We've, been, we've known each other for 10 years, we figured out. Yeah. Um, and I have such respect for you and your work, and that oh, is very you. nice. Thank you. Um, okay, so why'd you write it? That's an interesting story, which I think um, is worth telling. I usually don't tell origin stories about books. Um, AARP, the organization that advocates for and supports people who are 50 and older, um, was hearing from a lot of its members that they were having trouble parenting their adult children. Um, and AARP has a lot of members, 37 million in fact. Um, and they heard from enough, I don't know how many, um, to then call Simon & Schuster, which is a publisher that they've co-published books together with previously. And just complete luck for me, the person who answered the phone was my editor. <laughs> and then he, um, he then contacted me through my literary agent and said, here's the deal, would you be willing to do this? And I said, well, give me about five seconds to think about it. Um, and then I, 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 then I began thinking, like, well, what am I going to say? You know, like, what, what is this book about? Um, and, um, and, and, and I think there were two other things that converged. The first is that at the time, and now, I was a parent of an adult child, who happens to be in the audience tonight. Um, <laughs> And, um, and I won't tell any stories about our family at all. Um, but I, you know, I kind of, I sort of experienced what, you know, what it's like. And it made me feel more sympathetic. We weren't having problems at all. We're very close, have always been very close. But I realized that even in close families, there are issues that are difficult and that are unanticipated. And then the third, the third part of it is that I had been writing about adolescence for a long time. Um, and in the book prior to this, I talked about how adolescence had become elongated and that people were delaying the transition into adulthood. And I discussed what I thought the impact was on young people's development. 
And I had never given any thought at all to the fact that this maybe is affecting their parents too. You know, so, I, I, so, I, so that became kind of a frame for the book, the, the, the changing timetables of, of adulthood and parenting and what challenges this poses. Um, I, didn't, I didn't intend to write a book that was um, neutral or, or, um, or particularly compassionate to both sides, but it turned out that way. Yeah. Like as I thought about it, you know, that's, that's where it turned out. But, um, it, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience. I, I've learned a lot. That was actually I my mean, next question. Like, what'd you learn while writing it? How little I knew. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I learned, so here's what I learned, and, here, and, and, and that it was going to be very difficult to give people a lot of specific advice. I mean, I do have quotes from time to time that you might phrase something like this, because people's circumstances are so different. And I, I started thinking, it's so easy to write a book for parents of babies, because all babies are the same. <laughs> so you don't have to worry that it's not going to generalize. But now when you're talking about people whose lives are very different, some people have a lot of money, some people are poor, um, some, some of the young people have graduated from college, others haven't. You know, so, and, but I realized that I can't just write generalizations. People will say, that's just common sense. But I can't be so specific that people will say, this doesn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess I learned how to, how to thread that needle mm -hmm. um, as a writer and, and as a thinker mm -hmm. as, as I wrote it. And was it by often being like, here's how to think about these things. Like, I can't tell you what to do, but think about it in this way. Yes. Um, because, you know, in, uh, as you said, there is no research on this. Yeah. I mean, in other books that I've written, I could go to the research literature and I could say, well, here's what studies of spanking have found yeah. or whatever. Well, there's nothing out there. Yeah. Um, it, there's a few terrible things out there, but there's really <laughs> nothing out there. So I couldn't turn to that. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, I guess I just, I guess I just drew on basic kind of clinical skills as a psychologist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Was there anything in the book where you went in thinking one thing and then you came out thinking about something in a different way than you started? Yeah. Um, well, there, there, there was a, a, a huge revelation that I didn't have in mind when I began the book. Uh, and that becomes a, a part of the narrative. Uh, so most of you who are parents, <laughs> Um, know that autonomy is a big issue when your kid's a toddler and when your kid's a teenager. And there's been a lot of research on both of those age periods. And I started thinking that maybe a lot of the issues that come up when you're parenting an adult child are about autonomy. Um, it's, it's not, you know, your adult child's not being oppositional like a toddler might be and not being rebellious like a teenager might be, but might feel like kind of torn between needing you, but wanting to also know that they're competent and capable of being an adult without yeah. you. Um, and that, that didn't hit me until a ways into the book. And I think it turns out that it's, it's almost there in, you know, throughout the book. It is, and I mean, the kinds of examples I think about, you know, things like, you know, they may be choosing a paint color that is terrible. And you know it. 
even if you're right, there's value. They need to be allowed to feel like they made their own choice. Right. And that you didn't try to talk them out of it or over, you know. Right. Because you don't, you don't want to undermine, you know, it's a, it's a difficult time, and, and especially today. So the subtitle of the book is How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. And when we came up with that, we realized that we meant that word times in two ways. We meant it as a challenging time in development, mm -hmm. which it is, but also as the times in which we are living. Like, personally, I would not want to be in my 20s or 30s today. I think it is so hard for people um, in those age groups. And that then led me to, I think, be more even-handed and to be kind of more compassionate in, in the, toward the younger person. I started as compassionate toward the parent. Yeah. Um, but then that came in because I started thinking about how hard it is today. One way I would sort of characterize a lot of what I took from your book was you saying, listen, their experience of being in their 20s is not your experience of being in your 20s. Right. Will you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Um, so I mentioned before that adolescence has become protracted. People don't make the transition into adulthood in conventional ways until much later. And that's easy to, there is research on that. That's easy to establish. Um, you know, people are staying in school longer. There's no such thing as a four-year degree anymore. It's, it's, it averages um, five, and a lot of kids take six or seven years to finish college. Um, that means that they're financially dependent on their parents longer. That means that it, t it, it takes them longer to have enough money to establish an independent residence. Um, that means they're probably going to be delaying getting married or partner or cohabiting with somebody. And that means they're going to probably delay becoming parents. Mm -hmm. And so everything has been shifted. So I sort of did a back of the envelope calculation yeah. and said, uh, okay, Let's, let's say that the transition to adulthood begins when you graduate from college, and it ends when you sort of start your family. And not everybody goes to college, not everybody has children, but as a way of comparing generations, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And, and if you do the numbers, it turns out that today's young people take an average of 13 years to do that. Their parents took an average of eight years to do that. Now, five years may not sound like a lot, but it's 50% longer, right, to become an adult today than it was for their parents. And, and, and tagged to that is the, the very understandable inclination of parents to want to evaluate their child's progress against, against the schedule that they followed. So I have a whole section in there called, when I was your age. Um, <laughs> of the and, favorite words and, that kids and teenagers And I say, don't, don't say that, don't think it. it, it's not helpful, and it's wrong. You know, yeah. I mean, it's wrong. You were their age, but your circumstances were completely different. And even in the economic stuff, around the homeownership and the cost of that, I, that was really compelling to me. Yeah, yeah. The cost of, 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 of housing has increased five times faster than the cost of, than, than salaries have, all right? So there's a huge gap. And so now, uh, you know, half of all people in their 20s live with their parents now, right? Um, it was 48% at the height of the Great Depression. So it's more than that. Wow. It has never been more than 50% as far as we know looking back at the data. Huh. And so it's a different world now. Ah, I just, it was so, I learned so much in writing, reading yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there, if you had to sort of 
sum up what you want readers to take from your book? How would you describe it? Um, well, the first is that uh, parenting never ends. And, and I think that a, a lot of parents thought that the hard work of parenting was going to be over when their kids went off to college or maybe when their kids graduated from college. And it just isn't true. Um, and there are a lot, and, and so don't, don't, don't think that this is going to happen to you, you know? Um, Pace yourself. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and uh, right, so the sequel will be you and your middle-aged child, exactly. right? Um, the, 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 the second thing is, is, is this timetable thing. Yeah. Like understand, like so I get calls or emails from people, uh, somebody interviewing me about the book said, maybe it'll help me to read it because I've got two sons, one of them is 30, one of them is 28, neither of them is married, neither of them seems to have any prospects, what should I do? And I said, this is normal. Like the average age of marriage for college-educated people is sometime during the early 30s, not even 30. Wow. And so don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And then when we finished the interview, she said, do you know any nice girls? <laughs> <laughs> that is a true story. I love um, it. I love um, so, so that's the second. And then I guess the third is to try to respect your adult child's need for autonomy. Um, Oh, one other thing that that was hard. Mm -hmm. What do I call these people? Like, yeah. adult child sounds weird. Yeah. It sounds like Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> it, it, it sounds like an adult who's childish, or it could mean a child who's precocious. Yeah. You know, very adult-like. And we struggled with this, and we just couldn't come up with a better name for it. I, I end up calling them kids most yeah. of the time yeah. in, in the book, which I don't think is a, I hope it's not a demeaning. Yeah, no, but that's a tricky one. Yeah. Just in terms of topics, I and mean, you cover so many different topics, was there any topic that was just was hard to write or got rewritten a lot? Um, I, think the, I think the finances topic was hard to write. Um, mainly because there are so many situational variations. Yeah. Um, and I had to read a lot of stuff that was written about, you know, family loans and yeah. whether you should loan your child money or give them money. And do you have to have, should you have a contract? You know, what do the experts recommend? And, you know, their recommendations are all over the place. Yeah. But, but, but so here's a less specific answer to your question. And I think you mentioned it, but let me just say it. I realized throughout the book that my job was not to tell people what to do. My job was to, was to tell people what to think about. Yeah. Right? So your child comes to you and says, I could use your financial support. Um, I'm not going to say whether you should give it or not. Mm -hmm. What I'm going to say is, here are like five things that, you should, that should run through your mind. Um, and here's the conversation you should have with your kid um, before you, before you enter into any plan so that you're all on the same page and have similar expectations. Um, so that was always kind of hard to do because I'm used, you know, I'm used to telling people what to do. I mean, I'm used to giving, to giving people yeah. advice. Yeah. And, I, and I couldn't hear. Uh, you know, I, I, I and, I, yeah. But there was 
something about that. I, and actually, those were the parts. I think I was reading a lot of Mount Loud to my husband around the finances and how the loans work, and it was all stuff I had no idea about, totally new to me. Um, it was wonderfully illuminating, but also the fact that you were so specific and also not prescriptive made it feel really honest, right? I mean, like it's one of those things where if somebody's like, just do this, it's almost more suspicious, right? So I, I yeah. really, really yeah. appreciated where you're like, here's the lay of the land, now you gotta make your own choices. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think was really uh, yeah. It was it was helpful. hard to restrain myself, you know, because I might have opinions about those yeah. things, but my opinion might not work for everybody on on that, right? Yeah. Like I can t I feel comfortable telling parents yeah. that they should be loving and warm, but they should be firm, um, because there's a whole literature that supports that, and I don't have any trouble giving them that advice. Yeah, we know this. We know this is yeah. true. Um, so, this was a hard thing to do. I'm I'm. Well, I want to be where you know, kind of uh, cautious about time. Mm -hmm. I can see your watch. Okay. We've been going for about, about 20, minutes. twenty minutes. You want to switch you, gears? You want um, one more easy question? I'll give you a short answer. <laughs> or, yeah. Or actually, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you just want to make sure we talk about tonight? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I just want to say one thing that was a realization after I wrote the book, so yeah. I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. When I was recording the audiobook version of this, I was working with two people in their um, late 20s, the producer and the sound engineer. And neither of them had read the book, but they had to listen to me very carefully while I narrated it, because they're, they're looking for sentences that I fumbled and needed to retake and that sort of thing. And after the first day, the young woman who was the producer took me aside and she said, my parents have got to read this book. <laughs> And, and, three, and three days later, the sound engineer came to me and he said, I, I'm going to buy a copy of this book for my parents because they don't understand me. Yeah. And so I realized that I think a lot of adult children feel that way, that yeah. their parents don't get it. Um, and that, I think, is an important part of the, the, the book. Holiday gifts for the whole family. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I tried to persuade people to buy it as a Mother's Day present for their moms. I'm sure that would feel <laughs> really <laughs> fun. <laughs> okay. All right. So well, now. Wait, wait, wait. Thank you for writing this book. Please. I You're say welcome. that personally. Um, I, I, I enjoyed writing it, but I, you know, like you, I, I like writing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, Lisa's book, The um, Emotional Lives of Teenagers, mm -hmm. um, is just spectacular. And I say that as somebody who knows the research on teenagers pretty well. And did a lot of it. And did a lot of it. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been, I've been studying that stage of life for, if you counted graduate school, you know, for close to 50 years. Um, I write a textbook on adolescent development that I revise every three years, so I stay up on the literature. And honestly, the thing that I like about this book so much is that everything you say is backed up by scientific research. And I can't say that about a lot of books. But, but yet, it's not a wonky book at all. It's, and so I think that you have such, and I've said this to you, but now I'll say it in front of these people. I think you have such a gift for combining together kind of clinical insight, kind of a literary style writing, yeah. and, and science-based um, evidence and suggestions that 
is really unparalleled in our, in our field. So I, I really, I highly recommend this book and I think it'll be um, useful to, not only to parents, but also to educators and practitioners and other people that, that work with um, young people. Thank you. So it's great, yeah. just great. I agree. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so my first question is this. This book came out right in the midst of the most intense national conversation we've ever had about the mental health of American teenagers. Lucky for you, Ugh. right? Um, but, but I knew, you know, I know how long it takes to write and to publish a book. That wasn't the case. That wasn't going on when you were writing this. Mm. So I'm just curious about what was on your mind mm. when you decided to write this book? I mean, it turns out to be incredibly relevant to today. But what was going through your, your mind when you decided to write it? So, you know, I've cared for teenagers my whole career, um, written a couple other books about raising teenagers. The pandemic hit. I have never, I have worked hard in my life. I have never worked as hard as I started working in the pandemic. Um, trying to support parents and educators, starting a podcast out of nowhere just to try to give weekly guidance to families, and then doing um, constant webinars, educational stuff. Um, being in very close touch with adolescents. And I'm not a hyperbolic person. Like, it was so bad. It was so bad. And I think, you know, it's easily summarized in that, you know, teenagers have two jobs. Like, they are supposed to become increasingly independent and to hang out with their friends constantly. And the pandemic shut that down, and it was awful. So I was really not planning to write a book just because I was so drowning in the clinical demands mm -hmm. of what was going on. Um, and then my agent called and she's like, what do you got? And I was like, I have nothing to write. I can't write a book right now, but if I were going to write a book, here's what I would say. And I was like, da -da 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 -da. she's like, write it up. So she pushed me to do it. And it's not that I didn't want to. I just, it was like intention with trying to provide direct service at the same time. And so then, and you know this, the cycles around writing are very long. Yep. And my books always come out in February. Like, that, like they've got me in the spring list, you know, so it's not mm -hmm. a summer read, it's not a holiday gift, it's a, you know, it comes out in February. And to get it to come out in February of 2023, I had seven months to write it. Wow. Which is a very short, very short time. window. Otherwise, it would be coming out next February. And I was like, no, but it's like all going down right now. And so I basically did not get up. I ended up having to like go get, I was in pain. I mean, like you end up in like physical, like I had, you know, I had this guy who helped with a hamstring issue that developed, I mean, it was like this whole thing from just not getting up. And so I banged it out, I banged it out. And, um, in the end, actually, I feel like it doesn't look like a seven-month book. I feel like it's got everything I meant for it mm -hmm. to have, and it's polished, and it's right. But it was, it was physically painful, actually, to write it. But I wrote it at that speed because I was like, no, the families need this yesterday. And so this has to come out when it does. Um, but my aim also was not to write a pandemic book. Yeah. And so one thing that was spurning it was you know, all of this surge in distress around teenagers. But the other thing that was probably a more potent force in that, was my 
I would say huge frustration with the general discourse around mental health because, and there's a lot that informs us, there has been a shift in the culture where we equate mental health with feeling good. And that's not true or accurate. And then in the pandemic, when all these kids were really upset for really good reasons, right. then everybody's like, oh my God, my kid's having a mental health crisis. I'm like, no, they're having a rational reaction. Yep. And it's really about coping, not about trying to make them happy. Like, no one's going to be happy through this. It's really about whether your kid's going to smoke a ton of weed or whether they're going to you know, find more adaptive ways to cope. So I felt like it may have been inspired by the pandemic, but the big goal in writing this book was to try to do what I can from the little spot where I sit to shift how we talk and think about mental health back to something that's informed by how we think about it clinically. And from a research standpoint, that it's about having feelings that fit the context and then managing those feelings well. So I, I, I felt that the book is kind of a corrective and a much needed corrective because it acknowledges the tough times that kids are going through. But it, it, as, I, as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, what it's saying is, okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath and let's calm down a little bit. Because, you know, you start to get these hyperbolic headlines all the time. Um, and, it, you know, it, 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 it's not good. I mean, it's not good for parents and it's not good for kids. I mean, how would you like it if, if every day, you know, you saw in the newspaper an article saying that people your age were, wanted to commit suicide? You know, I mean, and what Lisa says is, Adolescence is a time when people's emotions fluctuate yeah. a lot. Now, and, and, and every fluctuation in their emotional life doesn't mean they have a mental illness. It doesn't even mean they have a mental health problem. No. It means that they're an adolescent. D did I get it right? Absolutely. I mean, I think I was so glad through the pandemic and in writing this book that I've been practicing as long as I had before it all hit. Because I was like, all right, I know in my bones. Like, Typical adolescence is very, very challenging. Right. And, and I can distinguish that from recent crisis or even mental health crisis. And so the goal of this book was really to do that and um, to just lay out you know, what we know unfolds in the course of normal adolescence and why there's always going to be friction and why your kid's not going to... I have a section called Why Your Teen Hates How You Chew. And, you know, like, it's very predictable and it's right there, you know, and like, it's always been that way, you know. And, and what you said about parenting informing your work and you know so my, I have a daughter who's now 19 and I have a daughter who's 12 so I also have had the benefit of you know parenting through yeah. an early you know an adolescence and having another one coming and and so I, I wanted to try to spring across like this is the landscape right and, and you don't have to be it's hard and it's not always pleasant but it's not necessarily grounds for concern so that that leads me to ask the following um, as I think I told you um, when I was in graduate school, my uh, second year of grad school, my advisor surprised me by telling me that the person who taught the regular adolescence lecture class had not gotten tenure and was not coming back, and could I do it the next semester? I had taken one class in adolescence in my entire life. Um, and I, I must have been shaking, because John looked at me and he said, you'll be fine. He said, the problem is that you're going to have to spend the first half of the semester getting them to unlearn all the junk they believe. So I want to ask you this. Um, what do you wish 
parents of teenagers would unlearn. Mm. Okay. So I think what parents of teenagers have been taught by our culture is that distress is bad. And some distress can be bad if it gets to certain levels, if it persists for certain lengths. But I would say a big section, a big kind of commitment this book makes is to actually try to make an argument on behalf of the developmental benefits of kids experiencing distress. Mm -hmm. And I'll just hum a few bars, right? Sometimes you're in distress because you did something really dumb and feeling the regret or the frustration and really feeling it will keep you from doing that dumb thing again, right? It's, it's valuable to do that. Sometimes you're in distress because something horrible has happened. And, and I have cared for a lot of teenagers who have come up against tragedies, terrible things. We would never want this for them. It has happened. If they can be helped to feel those feelings, work their way through, the maturation that arrives as kids really grapple with big, hard things um, is awesome to witness. And, and there's always a way I know it's happening in my clinical work, which is that a kid who's dealing with you know, the death of a friend or the death of a parent, I mean, really bad stuff, they'll come in and they'll start complaining about how petty their classmates are, right? That their age mates are like caught up on these dumb things. And yeah. these kids have become so philosophical and so broad-minded as a function of going through distress. And sometimes distress is useful because it just tells you something's not working. No. And you need the course correction by paying attention to the fact that you're in distress. So I think um, the culture right now equates distress with a mental health concern. And what I'd like for us to unlearn is that equation and to think about it instead of distress is often part of a valuable range of emotions we experience, can be growth giving and orienting and informative in incredible ways. And occasionally it gets to levels that need to be addressed clinically. And you know you're there because your kid's mood isn't going up and down. Like that's when we worry. We don't worry about distress, we worry about distress that lasts because teenagers by their nature are up and down. Up and down, right? Up and down? That's that's a Wednesday, as I say. You know, like yeah. but everything else, um, we can worry. Yeah. Um, well, so that leads me to ask kind of a practical question. Um, which is how, how should parents distinguish yeah. between what I would call kind of normative distress, yeah. like what you've described, um, and something that warrants seeing a professional? Like what are the what are the what are yeah. the signs? So there's the one I mentioned about it lasts, and like the thing is, teenagers are so the term we use is labile, like all over the map, but like you know just sort of very very a lot of variability in their mood. If your teenager is very very low, I would say for 48 to 72 hours, that's actually unusually long for a teenager. Mm -hmm. If they're paralyzed by anxiety for that long, if they are rip roaring awful to be with for that long, I mean they'll be awful and you know spurts, but like extended, you know, and so I'm not talking a long period of time. That, that's concerning. The other time to worry is what I call costly coping. So they're coping with their distress, but they're doing it in a way that comes with a price tag. So they're abusing substances, or they're taking it out on everyone around them, or they're harming themselves. You know, these are all unpleasant. They are all fundamentally effective attempts at feeling better, 
like when you're high, you do feel better. When you cut, you do feel better. It's that there's a cost associated. So they may be managing their emotions, but doing it in a way that's harmful. Those, for me, the big ones to look for. Should you, as a parent, should you find a way to ask them? Like, I've, I've noticed that you've been um, pissed off for the last 72 hours. Do you, do you want to talk about it, or, yeah. do you, or do you not approach it that way? So I think you do start with a teenager. And I think that um, when a teenager's acting in a way that is worrisome, I think the way to walk up to that is to believe, and I believe this to be true, but it's always, sometimes, sometimes not kind of hard to see. All teenagers have two sides. They have the kid who's being a total jerk and making life miserable for the whole family, or the kid who's very, very low, or the kid who's very, very anxious. And then they also have a side that is tender, thoughtful, broad-minded, self-advocating. You talk to the second side. So you don't say, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like this, right? Which isn't what you suggested. But you say, wow, you are really not yourself. Mm -hmm. You are really not yourself. What's, what's going on? Yeah. And, and I think that that's your best bet mm -hmm. for getting the conversation going in the right direction. Okay. I think that's good advice. Um, okay, I have one last one, and then I'll ask you to, to ask me if I didn't ask you something. Okay. Um, so in case you don't know this, Lisa's book has been an incredible bestseller. I mean, there was a period, and maybe it's still true, where I couldn't turn the television on without seeing Lisa Damore being interviewed by somebody. Um, so you've been, you've been around talking to people about this. And I'm just curious, like based on what these interviewers are asking you, um, what, what are, what's on people's minds? Like what are the most common things you get asked? So there's one question I get asked, and it's an important question, but it also gets to an important thing I'm trying to work against in my book. So the question I get asked the most is like, how do you get teenagers to talk about their feelings, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a good thing, and it's good for teenagers to talk about their feelings. But whenever I'm asked that question, I get like z rocketed back in time to literally 20 years ago when I was on the verge of delivering my first child. And so I was hugely pregnant, about to become a mom, and I was with a senior colleague in a clinical meeting, and we were wrapping up, and I wasn't going to see her until after maternity leave. And I'm almost at the door, and she's like, uh, Lisa, do you want to know how psychologists screw up their kids? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And she said, they talk about feelings too much. Interesting. And as soon as she said it, I could totally picture it, right? Like the kid's having a meltdown, and the psychologist's mom is like, oh, you're having a big mad feeling. Let's talk about the mad feeling. And, and so she said, there comes a point where you say, all right, you've been upset for a while. What's going to help you feel better? And in that kind of throwaway phrase, she captured what I try to bring across in chapters four and chapter five, <laughs> which is emotion regulation is a two-part process. And sometimes we regulate emotions by expressing them. You've been upset for a while. We're asking about feelings. We're talking about feelings. And sometimes you regulate emotions by actually taming them mm -hmm. and quieting them. And our culture right now is super into the first category. Yeah. Super into the first category. And the problem with that is talking works until it doesn't. It can help you feel better until it turns into rumination, right. where you're actually spinning and spinning and spinning and feeling worse. And so that's the question I get the most. And I would say the answer I'm often trying to advance is, well, talking can work if it's what your kid wants and if it helps them feel better. But if that's not what your kid wants, or if it's not what helping them feel better, 
Good news, we have an entire other category of regulatory strategies mm -hmm. that are not about expressing emotions, mm -hmm. which is kind of a heretical thing to say right now, yeah. but totally rock solid in the literature. Right. Like, we've always known this. Right. So that, for me, feels like the conversation okay. shift. Good. Um, so we're almost up to 40 minutes, but yeah. so what should we have talked about that I didn't think about asking you? So my two previous books have centered on girls. Yeah. So it was really fun for me to write an all-genders book and to spend a lot of time looking at the research on gender and the experience and expression of emotion. And I would say I had a few revelations as I wrote. Like, you know, because you do. Like, you go yeah, in right. and then you're mucking around and then you see stuff. For me, one of the biggest revelations about getting boys talking about feelings, which they do need to do more, and that we as a culture are terrible at socializing them to do, is how much of the research showed that boys by about fourth or fifth grade decide that talking about feelings is a girl thing, yep. and they stop doing it. And then the literature shows us that often in heterosexual two-parent homes, the person who's initiating the conversations about feelings is usually the mother. Yep. And it's so well-meaning, and it's so well-intended, and as I'm looking at all this literature, I'm like, and it completely entrenches the problem it's trying to solve. Because the boy is like, see, it's a girl thing. Because it's only my mom who asks about these things. So for me, on that point, the big takeaway was, if we want boys to talk about their feelings, it has to be the men in their lives who are talking about their feelings and who are asking about that's their feelings. Very, that's uh, um, really interesting. And women doing it, I'm not saying it can't work, right. but it's not my first choice if we really want to solve this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very sensible. Yeah. Great, great advice. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book. You're I welcome. know it's going to help so many Thank people. You. Um, Thank you. So, and this is good <laughs> So we have time for, we left time for and questions. there's a mic in the back here, so she'll, so go ahead and choose, yeah. <laughs> Hi. I just want to tell you that I've, I just love your book. It's just fabulous. I'm a psychotherapist here in Aspen, and I also love Untangled for, for Girls, which is also great, and I recommend it to all the parents that I work with and anybody here, too. Um, mine is a, a more of a general question. Um, I've been seeing so much pain with the young people that I'm working with, but the thing here in our valley that surprises me, and I would like to trying to do an initiative with everyone is the children are becoming so nasty to one another mm. that I'm just really worried about this and very perplexed to the point where I've writ written the superintendent here, I've written the principal. I'm thinking, can we do something in the school systems? Have you started something? I know you work in school systems. Could you tell us about kind of a template that you would think we could look at and could follow because we really need to do it here and start really young, I believe. Thank you You're so welcome. much. And I'm hearing what you're describing everywhere, that in terms of the aftermath of the pandemic, not that kids were great at conflict before the pandemic, but it has been ugly, unusually ugly in the wake of the pandemic. So um, between Untangled in this book, I wrote another book called Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. And in that book, I have a section on teaching, it's girls, but it works for all kids of all genders, teaching them how to do conflict because they're gonna have conflict. And so the quick summary on that, and it's corny, but it works, is I give kids four metaphors for how to do conflict. 
There's three unhealthy forms of conflict that everybody uses, including kids. Being a bulldozer, you run people over. Being a doormat, you let yourself get run over. And then most common, being a doormat with spikes, which is basically passive aggressive behavior. You can actually subcategorize that. Talking with kids about the fact that we all have those impulses, they're gonna have those impulses. Kids are hilarious at giving examples of the kinds of things that they are tempted to do. And then saying, okay, great. If you're gonna have a conflict, you can daydream all those, you're gonna act as a pillar. Stand up for yourself while being respectful of the other person. Kids as young as third grade latch onto these metaphors, use them really well, it gives a language, it normalizes that everybody's annoying, but that's okay, you still gotta be with them. You just can't be a full jerk all day. You know, like that, and, and so that, it's, it's very, it's right in that book, it's easily replicated, and it works really well with kids. Thank you, one more sure. thing. Over here. Hi, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really thank you for your book on young adults because my friend Corey and I, we try to be very um, intentional parents and we come to these uh, talks to hear about how to raise our teenagers. Uh, thank you, Lisa, for all the information you give us. And on the sideline, we're talking about our older boys who are away from home. And we feel like, I feel like, we're just off a cliff on our own trying to figure <coughs> out how to parent them. So thank you so much. And I think You're one welcome. of the things that is most important for us is that fear of having and ours are boys, right? A, living alone, where we're not seeing their faces. We don't know if they're okay. And they're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then we spend four days with them and we're like, okay, there's something not well. So I hope to find information on how do you not be so intrusive? How, how do you figure out how they are? Because they might just say they're okay. And how do you parent them at that stage where they're a young adult and they want their space, but sometimes they, they don't, need that much space, so thank you very, very much. Yeah. Well, that's the challenge. Um, I, I, I think that it's, at some point, you just have to ask them if you're being intrusive. You know, you just have to say, I, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about this, this, and this. Um, I'd love to talk with you about it if you feel like talking about it, but I don't want to, um, to be intrusive in a way that's going to make you pull away. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not like talking to a little child. I mean, they're adults. And I think that they can give you an honest answer to that. And then you can tailor your behavior. Um, it, I think a lot of problems between parents and their adult children can be handled at first by just having an open conversation. You know, not accusatory, not um, where one person dominates over the other, but just like, you know, things aren't going well in, in this aspect of life. And can we talk, you know, let's just talk about it and make some plans on how we're going to change it, you know? But I think you have to really respect their need for autonomy um, because intruding too much is going to make them pull back more. Thank you. Um, over here, the gentleman, uh, first row. In addition to the sort of delays that are happening with our adult children. Another factor that I think about is that many of us who parent, and indeed the parents who came before us, um, parent, we, we were raised in a, in a societal context where the economic tides of this country were lifting most boats, yeah. and where social and economic mobility was kind of a foregone conclusion yeah. from parent to child. Right. 
Anecdotally, my observation is that it's rare to see that most of my peer group's children stand any prospect realistically of matching what were objectively the standards of you know, economic gain, professional responsibility that their parents have achieved. And I wonder, you know, as, assuming that's a correct observation. I, it is. Um, some tactics to, from the parents' perspective, to um, recalibrate so that the expectations and judgment of children are not conditioned to the standards they were raised in, and to be sensitive to probably the implied levels of self-esteem that come to these young yeah. adult children where they might hold themselves, whether explicitly or implicitly, to the standards of what they saw their parents rising. Yes. So I, I have two suggestions. Um, one is, I, I think, depends a lot on your resources as a parent. But I think during the time that we're in now, if parents can provide financial assistance, they should. But, but, but never so much that you feel like your own retirement or health or life is being threatened. But, but look, I, I think that there are very few 30-year-olds who imagined that at the age of 30, they were going to be coming to their parents and asking um, for money. And I think that's the you know, kind of embarrassment part. Um, and there are very few parents who thought that when their kids were 30, they were going to be helping to support them. And so I think there's a way to have a conversation. So I think if you can, you should. Um, and, and I think there's a way to have a conversation in which you say, this is not your fault, right? This is, this is how the economy has evolved over the last generation. Um, and um, don't, just as you shouldn't judge them by your timetable, they shouldn't judge themselves by yours. And, and I, I think you, we, we, just have to, we just have to accept it and acknowledge it. It's, it is, you know, the housing crisis that young people face is not made up, it's real. Um, and there, there's no other answer to it other than finding money to be able to afford an apartment or a house. I, yeah. Thanks. Oh, yeah. I want a teenager's view on all this. Absolutely. Um, yeah, very sorry for this, but um, how has LGBTQ and the whole uh, transgender movement affected uh, teenagers and young adults' mental health? Because, I mean, as a 15-year-old myself, it's kind of a big pressures in society. Am I the right gender? Am I doing the right thing? Uh, how to avoid all these hidden sunken rocks that society kind of puts in your way in order to, well, not be sent, uh, like, be plastered to something like homophobic or transphobic or something like that. Yeah. So um, this is, you know, kind of an extraordinary time because things are shifting fast, both in terms of how young people talk and you know express gender, and then also how the society is trying to catch up to it and make sense of it. Right? That that it's been a very rapid shift. Um, what we know is that you see higher rates of mental health concerns in kids who are LGBTQ. <laughs> plus, and it's largely because of how challenging that can be in our culture and how challenging that can be in families. Um, and it's a really, really tricky and delicate time, both in the literature and you know, how we think about it. Um, but, and we're starting to research it and we're starting to make sense of it. But one thing that we um, 
do consistently find is it really, really matters to kids when they express any sexual or gender identity to have a sense of feeling affirmed in it. And affirming not being told, no, that's not you, or no, that's not how you feel. Now, where things get really complex is what affirm looks like, right? That, that that's, that's, can look a lot of things. And I will tell you, um, this is a very heated debate in the field, very heated. And I am frustrated with both ends of the debate when they talk about like what should we do when kids um, are, are working their way through these things. And the reason I feel frustrated is there is nowhere in the care of young people on any topic where we have ever said there is one way to go about this. Mm -hmm. Like there is nothing you can bring us where we're like you always do it this way. Yeah. And so for me, I feel like anyone on any side of this who's saying there's one way to go at this, I'm like, we've never done that. We always think about who's the kid? What's the context? What's going on around them? What are all the data we have? What do we know? And then we work our way through to trying to find a supportive and rational solution. So it's really, really delicate, but you know, it's sort of like what I, what I said about like the fact that you don't say do this <laughs> is why I like your book so much. And I think the same thing. Anyone who's like, this is the answer, it doesn't work like that. It has never worked like that. Just a, a, a brief observation yeah. to follow that up. Until politicians started getting involved in this, things were getting a lot better. I mean, there are studies that have been tracking the, the rates of bullying um, and the mental health of um, LBGTQ kids, um, and things were definitely improving. Um, and if, if the adults in this country would behave themselves. I mean, kids are much, kids themselves are much more accepting and much more tolerant now than they've ever been. And that's been well documented. And it's really a shame that the political discussions are, are undoing, derailing a lot of progress that has been made. I think we're being told that time to wrap it up. Um, thank you all so much. Lisa Damore is a clinical psychologist with a focus on child development. She writes about teenagers for the New York Times, co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, and appears as a regular contributor to CBS News. Her most recent book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Lauren Steinberg is the Distinguished University Professor and Lauren H. Carnell Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Temple University. An expert on adolescence, his research is focused on adolescent brain development, risk-taking and decision-making, parent-adolescent relationships, and juvenile justice. His latest book is You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.